Well, welcome. I am uh, so glad that you're joining us today for James to the Twelve, uh, lesson number seven. Uh, we're coming uh, right out of James chapter four, verses one to twelve. So grab your Bible and uh, let's ask the Lord to be our teacher. Father, thank you so much again uh, for the Bible that we hold in our hands. Your word is so readily available to us. We're guilty of not referring to it, not thinking about it, not memorizing, not making it a priority. And so I pray this morning that you would teach us, uh, forgive us for the casualness with which we treat your word and instead treat it really seriously as we listen to this lesson. Uh, let us be uh, practically applying the things that James is teaching us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, James chapter 4, uh, we're going to get into a, a section that has to do with uh, what, uh, what is the net result of our fussing with each other and some practical things that, that James is going to talk to us about on how to deal with some of those issues in our lives. And the bottom line becomes submission to God. But before we get there, I wanted to remind you what kind of a family situation James, the actual author of our book, faced in, in his life. And uh, in particular, to, to, to get a sense of the fact that he and his family questioned Jesus. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. If you have your notes in front of you, I think there's a typo there. It's Mark uh, chapter 3, looking at verse 31, not 21, 331. There was a, a, a long uh, situation there. Jesus is being accused both by his family and by a bunch of the authorities of the law about who he is and uh, I don't want to, whose authority is he working. And if you look down at... Um, uh, verse 30, the group says, well, he's saying these things because, you know, he has an impure, or he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus's mother and brothers, now that includes uh, the author of our book, James. Then Jesus's mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. The crowd was sitting uh, around and they told him, hey, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And, and Jesus goes into this, well, who are my brothers and who, are, who is my mother? And whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and so on. Uh, his family were not sure who he was, which always perplexed me. Uh, having lived with him for, say, 30 years before he started his public ministry, how is it that they didn't have a sense of his godliness but we know that they did question him. We know that they weren't sure. We know that they, they didn't have a definitive understanding until after the resurrection. But, but turn to 1 Corinthians just to, to get the, the, uh, the other end of this shoe. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul's writing about the resurrection of Jesus, and he's talking about you know, who got to see him after he resurrected, he says, um, after that, uh, well, first he appeared to Cephas in verse 5, and then to the 12, okay. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. And then, verse 7, don't miss this, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, remember, you know, James was not one of the original 12 apostles. He was a half-brother, and he was questioning, not certain, not sure. 
And yet God goes out of his way at the, at the point of affirming the resurrection to list who got to see him. And he makes sure that we know James was there. So we know James is, is getting all of his questions answered. We know that, that when he gets into his letter he, uh, that's going to all the scattered Jews, he's speaking from his own heart. I get it, guys. Let me tell you. Let me give you the practicality of the matter. And, and we left off in our last lesson with the, the very last verse in chapter 3, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. James just turns his attention to how do we become peacemakers? How do we harvest uh, peace in our own lives? Apparently there was, there was a, a fair amount of discord going on among the believers, a fair amount of fussing and fighting and bickering and quarreling and, and just not getting along. We have, we have two examples, uh, one with some significant repercussions, one we don't know a lot about. The one with the significant repercussions we see between Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15, when they're fussing about whether they're going to take John Mark on the second missionary journey. And the Bible tells us that their disagreement was so sharp um, that, that they, they parted company. So there was some disagreement even at the very highest levels of the early church. And then one not so significant you could find in Philippians chapter 4. Apparently a couple of ladies couldn't get along. Chapter 4 of Philippians verses 1 through 3. Paul says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, you stand firm in the Lord uh, in this way, dear friends. I plead with, you know, I want you to stand firm. And so I'm, I'm pleading with um, Euodia and, and, I, and I plead with Synthithi to be of the same mind in the Lord. I plead with you, cut it out, knock it off, stop it. Um, there was fighting in the believers, and the concept of, of James's thought regarding peacemakers who were sowing peace, he's saying, wait a minute, we got a lot of fussing going on. We got a lot of, we got a lot of practical issues. You know, I, I think if James lived today in our world in the United States of America in 2021, he would look around and he'd make some similar, similar concerns, similar statements. He begins in chapter four with asking some, some key questions, really three of them. The very first one in verse one, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What, what causes you to duke it out? Why are you fussing with each other? Why are you not agreeing? Why are, where are there major issues? A couple of words to call to your attention. The word fight there, it literally means an armed conflict. He's not talking about a minor disagreement. He's saying, you guys are, you're going you're gonna to come to blows if you don't stop. This is a serious thing. It needs to, it needs to quit. And then the word quarrel there, um, it, it, it is a lighter word. It does mean dispute. Um, and, and, and the concept is when we're quarreling, the, the truth get, gets lost. I'm sure you've been in an argument with a, a loved one, a, a spouse, a child, a parent, a really good friend, uh, someone you know well, and you get into the quarrel, and and somewhere in the middle of the the disagreement and the and the the conflict, you kind of forgot what you were fighting about. You forgot what the big issue was. Um, here, here, James is saying, well, why are you having the big ones and then not so big ones? I read an illustration about a, a dumb uh, bulldog, 
It says a bulldog can beat a skunk in any battle, any day, but it just isn't worth it. And, and often I, I think that that's true, certainly among believers. We can get into it, either the really serious stuff or the just petty bickering stuff. And yeah, it can happen and we can have it be a part of our normal life pattern, but why would we? James, James is saying, this is not a good thing. This is kind of a, a series of questions that are, the conclusion's supposed to be, ooh, we shouldn't do that. I was uh, looking up some, some details on what uh, modern uh, Americans are fighting about, particularly spouses. And here's a list of the kinds of the, the top 10 things that, that spouses are getting, getting uh, frustrated with each other about time. Uh, how to spend it, free time, what to do with your time, money, you could, we kind of expect that, children, um, housework, that's a biggie, uh, physical intimacy, um, the extended family, your Uncle Frank, my Aunt Susie, in-laws, outlaws, that kind of stuff, priorities, and surprisingly, at least to me a little bit, a lot of arguing over religion. Um, James is going to conclude here in a minute that instead of those kinds of fights, we, sub we should submit to God. But let's go to a second question, still verse 1. Don't they come, that is these arguments and fights, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? In other words, he's saying, can you step back and take a look at the disagreement that's going on here, however serious it might be, and can you not see that it's springing out of something in you? That, that it's, not, it's not necessarily the outward disagreement over this point or this point or this point or this point. But what's happening is there's something inside of you that, that's going on that's kind of forcing the, the argument or fo forcing at least the intensity of the argument. The word desires there, uh, don't, don't they come, these arguments, from your desires? The word desires there is the Greek word that, from which we get hedonistic. It's the idea that they're the desires or the lusts or the passions or the, the preferences that are in, in our mind. It's part of our pursuit of pleasure or gratification that, that meets our needs. So he's saying these, these disagreements that are going on, these even to the point of serious fights among believers, the, the source of them, kind of rhetorically is asking the question the source of them comes comes in our individual hearts you know i'm going to choose uh, what what i think works best for me what meets my needs what what make wait what makes me uh, the happiest and then when he uses the word battle there it's interesting that's a word that would in in their culture have been used uh, actually applying to military service so he's saying the the, the desires, the personally oriented, what's in it for me kind of thinking is, is, a, is part of a battle. It's, it's almost a, a military service. We sign up for it, we get into it, we, we, uh, we put ourselves in a position to, 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 to keep it going. Um, I, I threw it down a reflection question several times during this lesson. I couldn't help it, I was reflecting as I was putting the lesson together for myself. So here's a couple of questions for you. Here's one. In a disagreement, what personal desire 
what issue within your own heart are, are you really trying to either gain or protect in, in most of your bickerings or arguings or fightings with people? So pick out the last two or three disagreements with your spouse or your best friend or someone close to you and, and kind of analyze it. What, what was at the heart of it? Was there, was there really something about yourself that was in the middle of that? I, I did that about uh, some bickering with a friend of mine, and, and, I, and I was not very happy to, to discover that at the heart of the last two or three disagreements was really something that was about me wanting something my way. It wasn't about the issue. That which got the sharpness going between us really wasn't about the thing. It was about some reflection off of me personally. And James is trying to draw that to our attention. He's going to get us to a place where he can say to us, hey, I've got a bunch of things that can help you to stop this. Let me show you his third question, though, his last leading question. He says in verse number two, you desire, uh, but do not have. So you kill, you covet, and you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask of God. And he says, don't, don't you know, um, excuse me, I've missed it here. Let me back up and, and find the place where I want. I'm in uh, chapter 2, four, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 8, there we go. Okay, I, I got to just keep reading. I'm sorry, let me stop. I'm back to verse 3. You, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that, that you may spend uh, on what uh, your... Uh, spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Now there's his third question. I was got a little forestalled there. Don't you know that, that uh, uh, friendship with the world means having uh, an enemy with God? He sets up a, a standard or a pattern here going along with the three questions about your fussing and your fighting. He said, don't you know when you align yourself when you, when you put a focus on your friendship with the world, that you've put yourself in enmity, not with the person you're arguing with, but actually with God. He, he, he frames up the question referring to believers as being married to the Lord. He says, you adulterous, you people who are, are having a spiritual affair because of your friendship with the world. That's how serious he views it, how significant he sees it. He wants it to be something different. And in order for that to be true, he's drawing to our, to our attention the fact that it's like having an affair with God. He's, he's setting up the picture that God is the husband and the church is the bride. And the bride has, has a, a prescribed way of behaving towards her groom. And, and when she does so, she's recognized she's been promised to him. There is a one-person relationship here. Uh, I'm... I'm I am part of the bride of Christ. God says that we're going to be presented to him as, as a pure virgin in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And then in several other places, he uses this imagery of us being married to him to, to, to grow great focus on the kind of loving relationship that should be. I, I put in your notes Isaiah chapter 54, verse number 5. The Bible says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. 
And then if you want to read about a, a story uh, of someone that illustrates this, go to the book of Hosea and see how Hosea's wife was the picture of, of, of the harlot, uh, the, the partner that did not want to have a singular love and affection for her husband and watch how her husband responds to her in much the same way God keeps responding to us. But when we flirt, if you will, with, with spiritual adultery, we're, 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 we're putting ourselves in a dangerous position. When he, when he isolates the intention or the, the intensity, the focus on the idea that friendship with the world equals an enmity with God, he's saying he intends to be our one and only. And when we get engaged in the frivolous, silly, um, shallow, non-important fussings, fightings, bickerings, arguments, hassles, we're in a sense taking away from our, our loving relationship with our Heavenly Father and sliding over into friendship with the world. And friendship with the world that kind of behavior, that kind of an attitude is, is, a, is enmity with God himself. So I ask another one of those reflecting questions at this point. I ask, in what ways am I fostering a friendship with the world? What are, what are behaviors that I do or find acceptable or participate in or ignore that I shouldn't? What forms of entertainment do I allow in my life that suggests that I have a, a greater connection to the world than I do to my Heavenly Father? Where, where is my allegiance? Where is my love? Where is my attention? What, what am I doing to foster a relationship with the world rather than fostering a relationship with, with my Heavenly Father? I mean, we do all kinds of things to to foster attention, uh, everything from uh, sports fanatics to certain kinds of physical activities that we spend tons of time and attention on to, to pastimes or, or uh, habits or, or things that we enjoy, none of which is wrong, all of which uh, can be a part of the human experience. But when it's contrasted with how much time and attention, how much effort, do we foster our relationship with the Lord, then, then it gets dicey. Now, right in the middle of this section, James is going to draw a bit of a conclusion. He's going to kind of say something to himself about, why are these things going on? What, 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 what's causing this? Or why are these, these issues coming up? And he says, um, let's start with uh, maybe verse number... My Bible, I've got my my good Bible, quote, quote, my personal Bible at home, and I grab my school Bible, and it's driving me crazy because I can't find what I want. Go back up to verse number 2, for example, and uh, at the end of verse 2, I'm going to look at verse 2 and 3. He sticks in an idea here. He says at the end of verse 2, You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Here's his statement. You don't have that because you do not ask God. And then he says in verse 3, when you do ask, you don't receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. So right in the middle of the discussion of his three questions, 
um, about their, their fussing and fighting, arguing and bickering. He says, you know what, you, you guys, you got it all wrong. You don't, you don't ask of God when you could and should. Um, and, and you're not getting what you need in life because when you do ask of him, you ask it, uh, whatever it is, with all the wrong motives. You ask badly. Um, it's your intention, he says, to spend freely the, the results of your prayer, the answers that you get. You're going to use them on your own pleasures, on your own issues, on your own stuff. So you don't ask, or then you ask, and you ask for the wrong reasons, with the wrong motives, with the intention to spend it all. That is the, the, the blessing that you get from that prayer. You intend to, to consume it all yourself. Now, what, what is he trying to say? He's saying in the midst of the struggles between believers, and, and human beings disagree, whether it's a loving husband and wife, or a parent and a child, or grown adults, or in-laws and outlaws, or friends at church, it doesn't matter, or best friends at work, or uh, business partners. As human beings, we disagree. We're all different. We all see it differently. We stand on a different corner in a, in a four-way intersection, and our perspective is different. He says, but, but why aren't you praying about it? Why aren't you asking, maybe together with the other party, uh, the Lord about whatever the disagreement is? Should we do A or should we do B? Should, should C or D be prominent in this season in our life? Why, why aren't you asking? And he says, you're not asking, number one, nearly as much as you should. And number two, you're asking for all the wrong reasons. Your motives are wrong. You're just trying to consume it. God, should I have this uh, great blessing or this great blessing? As opposed to, God, what do you want for my life? One of the astounding principles about praying uh, about choices and disagreements is that God will always, always answer yes to our prayers if we ask according to his will. If we get the mind of God, then whatever we're asking, it's an automatic yes. The, the trick, and it's not a trick, but the, the, the necessity is to gain the mind of God. So I come to a request with a, with a, a selfish heart. Please do this and please do that. E not necessarily for my own consumption. I might be praying on behalf of someone else, but I've got it all locked in. Please do this and please do that. But if I had the mind of God, I had the will of God, the way I approach praying for something would be entirely different. I wouldn't box God in. I wouldn't, I wouldn't treat him like a, like a cosmic vending machine. And even if you don't do it for your own personal stuff, we still treat him like a vending machine for those that we love. We look at a situation, we assessment, assess it, we figure out a thing or a way we think it should be fixed, and then we tell God about it. So one of my reflection questions about this little parenthetical part he's stuck in in uh, verse 2 and 3 is what does, what does our normal prayer life look like? Is God that, that cosmic vending machine to you? Or, or are you doing your very dead level best to pray in his will? James is, is driving home his point. Then he gets to verses 5 and 6. And he's going to talk about how God wants to intervene on our behalf. Verse 5 says, Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. 
That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. He brings up the topic of the, of the truth that God is jealous over us. Now, not jealous in the way we use that word with all of its neg negative connotations, but jealous as in, I am so committed, I am so focused, I am so wanting your best that I can't stand it when you're not in the position to receive it. He says in uh, Zechariah chapter 1, I am very jealous over Jerusalem and Zion. He loved them so much. He wanted so many good things for them. And, and he even describes himself as a jealous God when he gives us the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Um, the, the point that James is trying to make might be found in Romans 8. I think I put it in your notes, verse 7. That the mind that is governed by the flesh, it's hostile to God. It doesn't submit to him or his law, and, and, and nor can it. Contrast that with, with Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. And I want to turn there, Proverbs 3, 34, because the opposite of that kind of a, a mindset or an attitude is the mindset uh, of getting grace because there's a, a heart of humbleness. Proverbs 3, 34. He mocks the proud, uh, he mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. He's going to give grace to the humble. Now, we talked a little bit about humility last week, but it's, it, uh, it's, it warrants an, another moment or two on it. The word humble is, um, is not a concept of, of somebody who's weak or is the vernacular of our day would say wussy, um, mild-mannered, um, unable to step to the plate, just kind of hides in the, in the corner. They're just kind of, you know, mealy mouth, uh, to use another colloquial expression. That is not humility. Humility in the scriptures is the, is the description of a wild stallion that's brought under control. All that strength, all that power, all that ripple of the muscles, all the vigor that's in that horse is brought under control by the rider. And that horse is now humble. He's not without power, but his power is under control. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's the idea of making an accurate assessment of the gifts or talents or abilities that God may have given you, but to remember where they came from and what they're supposed to be used for, not to bring attention to ourselves, not, not a grandiose look at me, I can, I am, but to use them for the glory of God. So the reflective question here is, do other people consider me humble? Is there a humility associated with my life? Do they see whatever gifts or talents or abilities or strengths there are in my life, do they see those as under control by God? Well, with that in mind, James then gives us 10 specific commands to help us with that, that, that need to develop humility. And in verses 7 to verse 10, he's going to give us 10 specific things that we ought to be doing. 
and it makes a nice little checkoff list for for those of us that want to see how we're doing a, a great little a little weekly quiz if you will look at number one in verse seven he says straight out submit yourselves then to god that's what you got to do submit yourselves to god submitting here is the idea of accepting the will and the authority of christ in our daily life, we acknowledge he's in charge, we're not. When I work myself up into a tizzy about something, it's almost always because I've assumed ultimate responsibility. I've said I'm in charge. Now, maybe I didn't mean it uh, in a particularly selfish way, but I, but I assumed a responsibility God never intended for me to have. When I submit to him, I'm acknowledging he's in charge. I'm saying, Lord, it's you. Now, when we take that into what I'm going to call mutual submission uh, on, a, on a horizontal way, not between us and God, but between us and other people in our lives, God is now looking for us to have a similar kind of attitude uh, towards the other person. Two people hit the door at the same time. Are you going to knock each other down trying to get through the door? Or is someone going to relent, open the door, and go after you? That's, that's an act of submission. Um, there are thousands of examples that, that, sh that show up in our everyday life, but the concept is not that there would be a, I'm a doormat to someone else. Lots of times when we talk about mutual submission, particularly in the context of, of marriage relationships, uh, especially the wife starts to cringe. But marital submission does not mean that you either agree on everything or that one party has left their brain at the door or that, or that the other party has to live in fear or couch and in some sort of uh, worry uh, that, that, that if they express themselves or put out a suggestion that they're, they're going to cross that boundary. It's not that way at all. Every party in a marriage, the husband and the wife, they have to derive their personal spiritual strength through their own relationship with the Lord. You can't, you can't you know, lean into the other guy and, and say, well, I'm, I'm just going to tuck myself in here and have no personal relationship. I'll just feed off of him or her. It doesn't work that way. It's two uh, parties coming together willfully, choosing to yield out of a heart of love. And I used an ex example last week that I, I found someone I think is just so appropriate here. It's like um, a, 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 a one-car bridge that you might come to. On one side of, of that bridge, there's a big sign, and it says yield. It's, it's narrow. There's only one lane. And on the other side of the bridge, guess what it says? It still says yield. If both parties jam it uh, forward and push their cars onto that bridge, they're going to meet head to head. They can't get by. They can't function. But if one yields, then the other car gets to go. And next time, the other one yields, then the other car gets to go. James says, submit yourself. Have an attitude of, you first. Have an attitude of, why don't you try it? Or why don't you take it? Or why don't we do it your way? Or let's go with your idea. Remember, our goal ultimately is to live in a, in a, a situation where we can have a harvest of righteousness, where peace reigns. And, and the first command he gives us is to submit ourselves to each other. Our world doesn't like that word, but it is an important one. The second uh, command he gives us is still in verse 7. He says, resist the devil and he will free from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
If you want to know what Satan's job is, you're going to turn to John 10, 10. And in it, it's going to tell you specifically that his job is to come and steal, kill, and destroy. That's his job. That's what he wants to do. So since we know what he's about, what is it that we're supposed to do? And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 8, tells us our job. Our job is to be alert because the, our enemy is on the prowl. We shouldn't be surprised when, when a negative situation presents itself and we could easily get into a fight or disagreement about it. We shouldn't go, oh my, where did that come from? We should say, you know what, our enemy is at active. He's active right now in our home. He's active right now in my business relationship. He's active right now between me and my kid or me and my adult uh, children. He's wanting to, to steal our joy or kill our relationship. And we're not going to let him because we're, we're paying attention. We're going to resist. We're going to ask God to intervene on our behalf. We're going we're to be uh, alert to our enemy. He gets to the third command in verse number 8. He says, come near to God. I love that. Come near to God. How do we come to God? I want you to turn in Hebrews, just back a couple of pages to chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to look at verse 22. Hebrews 10, 22. Here's what the Bible says. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Having our conscience sprinkled, our bodies washed, let's come near to God with a sincere heart and it will bring full assurance to us. You know, this, this is, a, is a tense in the original language. It says it's already done. It's completed. We get to draw near because that's exactly what we're going to find. We're going we're gonna to find that, that we have a clear conscience. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. On our behalf. Our guilt is gone. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the payment for our sin and all its shame and guilt has been thrown away. As far as east is from west. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. There is therefore now no, no, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Whether we bring it up or somebody else brings it up, it's inappropriate. We get to come near to God. We don't have to hide. Those of you that have raised children, you, you could always tell when they did something schnooky because they're going to make themselves scarce. They're going to hide somewhere. They, they don't want to come be right in your face. We're the same way with God. When you slough off your devotions for a day or two, possibly at the heart was it's a choice you made, an attitude, a behavior of some kind, and you, oh, I don't know if he wants to be with me. This is not true. The old adage, if you feel far away from God, guess who moved, applies here. We come not because we're perfect, but we come because that's where we belong. I could always tell when I was, uh, during the act of disciplining uh, my goddaughter, if I did it right, if I had the patience, if I had the right heart attitude, if I was, if I was clearly focused on her and, and, and helping to train her, she wanted to be with me. She didn't want to be far away. She wanted to crawl up on my lap. It's the same way with us and God. Come near to me. You want, you want to know how to, how to 
have a heart of humility that produces peace, this is it. You come near to God. Same, same verse, he uses another phrase. He says, wash your hands, you sinners. The idea here is not that the ultimate payment for your sin needs to be made by you. That was already done at the cross. But the daily cleanup. 1 John 1, 9, if we say we haven't sinned, we're, we're lying. But, but if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not the ultimate judicial cleansing that's in view there. It's the cleanup. It's the stuff that's left on your face. It's the you know, dirty hands you have from a, a, a busy day. It's the short sin list. We come to God and we keep our hands clean. We, we, we confess quickly that which uh, you know, is done and has, has a, a negative to it. We, we recognize it. We confess it to God. We forsake it. We try not to do it again. Wash your hands. An active daily activity. Checking it out. How is my behavior today? If you're working on patience, ask those around you. How am I doing? Did you see anything this week you didn't see last week? You know, have you seen a trend over the last six months of my whatever it is? Wash your hands. Number five, purify your heart. Same thought, but pur purity here has the idea of, of having uh, an unmixed uh, mess, or uh, not mess, an unmixed uh, event or product. It's the idea of cleaning up your act. It's not just washing your hands. It's, it's, it's the act of of dwelling in God's word and watching your mouth and monitoring your attitudes and choosing your behaviors and putting that all together in a, in a, in a sense that says, this is important. I need to have a, a cleaned up, purified heart. Psalm chapter 50, verse number one says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Then, then comes three uh, instructions from James that are all linked together. Um, I would invite your attention to go to verse number nine. He says, Grieve, mourn, and wail, and change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, when you just look at that, you go, wait a minute. The, the Bible talks about that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Why, why should we be grieving and mourning and wailing and changing our laughter into mourning? All four of these instructions are meant to be a focus or a reaction to our sin. When we see us as sinful beings, when we notice that we're, we're struggling with this or this or that and that, when we put attention to that which is drawing us away from coming near to God, when we grieve or mourn or even wail over our sin, we're to a place of being able to repent. We're, we're, we're moving away from a kind of a worldly self-reliance and our own personal ambitions, and we're moving towards a, a season of serious reflection on that which, which trips us up. James doesn't want his readers to rationalize their sin. Well, I wouldn't have lost my temper. We wouldn't have had that disagreement. I wouldn't have argued with you. We wouldn't have had that fight if you just da-da-da. What he wants us is to look inside and to lament, to cry, to wail, to be, to be feeling badly about our own participation, our own attitudes, our own sin. And when we're miserable 
over the destructive nature of our sin, then we're able to enter into relationships without the fighting and the, and the bickering and the arguing and the disputing. That's a very important point that's lost in our culture. We don't, we don't talk a lot about feeling bad about our sin. You know, when a little kid does something wrong, we tell them to go sit in the corner, and I want you to think about it. In essence, that's what we're doing. We want them to be reflective about it, to say, ooh, I probably ought not to do that. But as adults, how often do we put ourselves in a corner and spend a little bit of time grieving and mourning and wailing even over our own sin? It's a, it's a great point to take home. But I, I want to I draw it all together with verse number 10. Because he sums up these, these ten things in this verse by saying, Humble yourselves, therefore. Humble yourself before the Lord. And what will he do? He will lift you up. Remember, the only place where Jesus self-describes himself is in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where he says, I am meek and humble. You and I need to have that same heart attitude about people that we work with, uh, that are in our family, that are in our extended relationships people that we might normally uh, rub, uh, rub each other wrong, maybe, maybe two, two leaders that are, that are struggling, two strong-willed sisters, to whatever. We have a tendency to, to one-up to, to one the other guy. And what he's talking about is, is an attitude of humility. I, I read a great illustration, two, two wonderful preachers, a guy by the name of George Whitfield and someone you probably know, John uh, Wesley, they, they were uh, ministering in the same time frame, but they had some deep theological differences, and it doesn't matter what they are, but they, they did. And people in the Christian communities knew about it. So one guy, kind of snarky, uh, one day says to, uh, to George Whitfield, do, um, do you think you're gonna see John Wesley in heaven? Kind of in essence saying, you think he's the real deal? I don't know, he doesn't believe like us. And George Whitfield responded this way, you know, to the question, do you think you'll see him in heaven? His first line was, hmm, I'm not sure I'll see him. And you can almost imagine the other guy starting to puff up. Yeah, right, see, we're not going to see him. And instead he goes on and says this, I'm not sure I'll see him because he's going to be so near to the throne and I'm going to be so far in the back, I'll hardly be able to get a sight of him. That is humility. This week, guys, I, I want to sum all this up and answer the so what by saying we got to quit judging our neighbors. We don't want to put ourselves over someone else. James very practically is saying this is how you live a peaceful life. You anchor your soul in humility. You stop the bickering. You follow those ten uh, suggestions that he puts in the form of an actual command. And you find a way to put God first others next and guess where we come last well thanks for coming and thanks for listening it would have been no fun without you god bless you